Good morning, church. I wanted to offer you a fair warning up front. As of yesterday, I had 17 pages of notes for the sermon this morning, so you may need an intermission at some point, okay? Um, Just kidding, kind of. Um, So, you know, I I cut it down. It's way shorter than that, but um, there is so much here that it was hard to decide what to hit on this morning, and so uh, I'm going to do my best to do this passage uh, justice, and we are in... Uh, ironically, a passage that speaks about justice. And we are in uh, Malachi chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. And so, um, if you don't know where the book of Malachi is and you need help finding it, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So just turn to Matthew and then turn a few pages backwards, all right? And you'll be right there. Uh, We're going to take a break this week from the study of the seven churches in Revelation that Pastor Pat's been going through. Uh, And we're going to take a look at this passage in Malachi uh, this morning. And uh, just to give you a little backdrop, uh, a little background, uh, this was a passage that I was looking at uh, at one point over the summer that God was trying, was, was revealing some things to me through, and uh, I, I got to speak on it a little bit with our young adults at a, at a retreat over the summer and some things like that, and uh, he's continued to lay it on my heart, and so uh, I'm going to continue to speak on this uh, and follow as I think God would have me to this morning. And so I want to open this morning by asking you a couple of questions uh, because it leads directly into the passage we're looking at. And so, uh, have you ever questioned where God was in a situation? These can be rhetorical, or you can, you know, give some sort of affirmation. I don't care. Either way, all right? Have you ever questioned where he was in a situation? Have you ever wondered why he let something happen? Maybe said, God, why did you allow that? Or, God, where were you when this happened? Or, God, why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you answering me? Or God, why do bad things happen to good people? That question comes up often, right? Or why do good things, for that matter, happen to bad people? See, we ask these questions, and and we want answers, but we don't always get them. As a matter of fact, in the world we live in today, I would say that some of these questions probably come up simply considering the things we have going on around us right now. You consider what's going on in Afghanistan. You consider that yesterday was the 20th anniversary of, our, of the 9-11 attacks, right? There are things going on in this world right now that we can look at and probably have some of these similar types of questions to. Would you agree with that? All right, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's ever asked these questions about a situation. That makes me feel better about myself. Thank you. Not that that's the goal, but here we are, all right? Um, and so that's where the people were at Malachi at this time. They were asking God these questions. And so our passage today begins with Malachi Chapter 2, verse 17. And the people are questioning God about his justice. Where are you? Are you really just? Why haven't you shown it? And God gives them a glorious and beautiful answer. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. But what I would like to do first here is let's read this passage. All right, We're going to read starting in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, and we're going to read the first five verses uh, of chapter 3. All right? You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. 
He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I'll draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's go ahead and read verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray together before we dive in. God, I thank you for this opportunity this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, I know that even as I prepared, God, you were putting things on my heart and challenging me in my faith and my trust in you. And God, I pray that you do the same in the midst of this congregation this morning. God, let the words spoken be your words and your truth. And God, um, I pray that you would reach out to us in a mighty way this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. And so let's take a step back and let's look at what happened previously in the book of Malachi. I don't know what y'all know about Malachi, but it's a very, it's a very interesting book and it's very repetitive in the way that it words things, all right? And so there's this pattern of God says you have done this, but the people say this, insert their question, where's the God of justice in this case? And then God responds, well, you, you said that whenever you said this. And so there's this back and forth that goes on multiple times in the book of Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 1, they're questioning God's love for them. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, they question why God doesn't accept their offerings to them. Why are these offerings not being accepted? In verse 17 that we just read, they question whether God is really a God of justice. You go further in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, they question how they can even return to God, basically implying that they've never even left. And they would have no reason to return. You see, there's this pattern. And this type of questioning that they're doing happens throughout the Old Testament. It happens in the book of Job, in Psalms, in Habakkuk, in Jeremiah, in Ecclesiastes. They all speak of it. And so there's this pattern of questioning God about different things. And so before we dive into what this specific passage is saying, let me give you a little background to Malachi, all right? Malachi... uh, the author of Malachi, you would probably guess, is Malachi, right? Um, and that would be uh, in line with traditional thinking. There are those that say Malachi is just a play on words because the, word, the name Malachi means my messenger. And so they would say it's just a play on words. It, it's really just a general term. could be anybody. Um, but through other historical uh, evidence and historical writings, uh, there appears to be proof that it really was uh, indeed a proper name in a specific person, all right? And based on the struggles uh, mentioned in this book, it appears that Malachi was probably a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah around the 5th century B.C., all right? And so at this time, Israel was experiencing some severe spiritual destitution. Their religious leaders were making ethical compromises. They were diluting proper worship and making worship not have the great meaning that it's supposed to have. And Malachi 1 Malachi defends God's love for the people. He reminds them that their obedience and worship is the proper response to the love of God. But instead, the people were dishonoring him by offering worthless offerings. They were hypocritical in their worship. They were divorcing for absolutely no reason. 
He calls them out for idolatry, for being adulterers, and he calls them out for mistreating the lowly. These sound like things that happen in our world. Does it sound familiar to anybody else? A lot of those things look like something we could see around us. See, they're living in a world in a time where evil is around them constantly, and even in their own midst. And after questioning God about other things, they question his heart for justice. And I love the Lord's words here in verse 17. If you've got your Bible still open, look at verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. What in the world does that mean? All right? The word wearied here, all right? It, it's fantastic. This is why I love the response so much, all right? It means to make someone physically and mentally exhausted or to annoy them or aggravate them. God's like, you have wearied the Lord. You have annoyed me at this point, all right? Um, Anybody know what it feels like to be annoyed? You just want to shoo them away, all right? Stop it. I've had enough. And he's annoyed by their words. But here's the thing. He's not annoyed because they asked him a question. He's not annoyed because they had a doubt, okay? It's not that any doubt or question we have automatically annoys God. That's not what this is saying. But in this case, what's annoying to God, what is uh, aggravating him, what's exhausting him, is the fact that they are questioning his very character and they're questioning something that he has proven to them over and over. They basically are calling God a friend of sinners in this passage, is what they're doing. They're calling him a friend of sinners by saying that he looks at those that do evil and says that it's good, suggesting that God doesn't know the difference between good and evil. And so this is the accusation they're really making and they question whether he's a God of justice. They lacked faith and they lacked a fear of the Lord. And so what is, how does God respond? And God responds by making several promises. And if you know anything about the word of God, when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. And so that's going to be a really good thing for us as we look at this passage today, all right, to keep that in mind. And so what does he do? He makes several promises. And what we're going to see in these promises is that God makes a warning to the wicked, but he offers hope for the righteous. And that's where we need to dig in. So here we are. Uh, We're going to start here with chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so God promises and makes a promise of messengers in in verse 1. All right, so that's that's, that's the first point here. The first promise he makes is a promise that there's going to be messengers. And the first one, he says, is my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. If you go further into the book of Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5, uh, it makes a reference and says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet. See, it's not literally referring here to Elijah, as Elijah has been with the Lord for several hundred years before this already. And so it's not specifically saying that. What it's saying is an Elijah-like prophet with an Elijah-like ministry. And so what he's digging into here is that the messenger who will prepare the way before me is referring to John the Baptist in the New Testament. And so that's the first messenger that he brings up, that it's John the Baptist, all right? And so John the Baptist in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of them, uh, um, this verse is basically quoted, and you remember that phrase, prepare the way, all right? And so that phrase Uh, prepare the way was an interesting one because it was a custom at that time where you would send messengers to the various towns and villages uh, that that you that a king was going to travel and you'd notify them of his approach hey the king is coming the king is coming 
And that's what they would do. They would send a messenger ahead of them. And then it would enable the people to prepare a proper reception for him. And so that was the role of John the Baptist here. He's to go before him. He's to prepare the people. He's to deliver this message of repentance before them, before the coming of the Savior. And that brings us to the second messenger, which is the messenger of the covenant that mentions in verse 1. And the messenger of the covenant is Jesus himself, is Jesus Christ, all right? Several clues tell us. Uh, Number one, if the one preparing the way is John the Baptist, then who was he preparing the way for? Jesus, right? So this has to be Jesus. Number two uh, is that he's referred to as Lord, and that's not a name that's given to John the Baptist or Elijah or anybody else. And then the third part is that it says that the temple belonged to him. See, the temple belonged to Jesus. And when Jesus came the first time, he came to the temple And the temple referred to here is the second one. It's the same temple Jesus entered a week before his death. And so Jesus comes as the messenger of the covenant, the one who fulfills the Old Testament covenant and brings with him a new covenant under grace. And that's what he does. And so Jesus comes. He's the second messenger, the messenger of the covenant. As the messenger of the covenant... He fulfills the requirement of the old covenant by being a perfect blood sacrifice for the people. And he brings this new covenant. And so Jesus, as the messenger of the covenant, is both the proclaimer of the message and he's also the purifier of the people. Now, this is in a passage dealing with justice, right? And when Jesus comes the first time, he doesn't come to judge the first time. He comes to bring salvation, to fulfill the covenant, to bring a new covenant. And so when it's talking about in relation to the idea of justice here, it's referring to his second coming. Because his first coming, he didn't come to refine us, but he came to redeem us. And so that takes us to the next promise. And the promise, second promise that's given us, we find in verse 3, that is the promise of purification. And if you don't mind, we're going to camp out here for a minute, all right? We're going to camp out here for a little bit, all right? It's the promise of purification, You see, at Jesus' second coming, he's going to come as the purifier. And we all need to be pure before the Lord because by nature, we're impure. By nature, that's what we are. By nature, we're impure, and by practice, we're impure. Okay? And so what this passage does is it introduces the phrase, like a refiner's fire. What does it mean to be refined? Well, by literal definition, uh, To be reduced to a pure state or a usable condition by removing impurities through a process of extreme heat. You're going to be in the fire at some point. Me too. But that's not exactly what it means. It's not what it looks like, all right? And so in order for us to be refined, we we need a refiner, which it says Jesus is coming to do. You see, this is necessary because we can't get rid of our own sin. We can't get rid of it on our own. If we would, we wouldn't need refining. And so we're called to trust in the purifying mercy of God. You see, it gives two images here, a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And the purpose of both of them was to cleanse and make something pure. The fire was used to make metals like gold and silver pure, and the fuller's soap was used to clean and purify wool. And there, there are processes involved with both of those that are extremely fascinating, by the way. And we're going to dive into those here in just a minute, all right? But we're not quite there yet. What the verse tells us is it says he will purify the sons of Levi. 
And so, um, as we know, this does connect directly to the priests of the time because uh, all the priests were of the line of Levi. They were descendants there. And so, uh, the tribe of Levi. And so, uh, they were specifically speaking of them who at that time were not leading in worship as they should be. Um, But since Jesus comes as the great high priest, no more high priests are needed after him. So we can also need to look at this passage, is that all believers fall into the category of sons of Levi. And so the believers, uh, they're believers that are devoted to God's praise and they're employed in his service. So all true Christians are sons of Levi, set apart for God to do his service. And so for us as believers, there are two forms of purification that take place. The first happens while we're on earth. The second is at the mercy seat where we'll be fully purified before God and fully cleansed and fully holy before God. And so that brings up two questions. One, what does God use to purify us? And two, what does that process look like? And so in these two images, we get that answer. But for the first question, we need to look elsewhere in Scripture. What does God use to purify or refine his people? And the first thing that God uses is afflictions of all sorts to purify us. That's what he uses. See, God's divine instrument for molding and making us into the image of Christ is pain and suffering. And he uses that to make us like Jesus. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. We're tried in the furnace of affliction. That's what, God, that's what God does. That is how we are refined, is through the, the idea of trials. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, the furnace of affliction, if you're a part of the family of God, is always for refinement. It's never for destruction. You're not there to be destroyed. You're there to be refined. And if we look ahead at Malachi 3.6, it says, I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. His goal is not to consume them. It's to turn them into the image of Jesus. It's to refine them, to make them more like him. And when it says, I, the Lord, do not change, it means he's being faithful to his covenant, to his people. He's being faithful to his people, showing love to his people like he always has. Another way, that uh, thing that God uses in order to refine us, and this is going to sound uh, different, um, but uh, I, I think it, it's accurate, all right, is deliberate self-denial, all right? Um, all right, that is, all right, all right, making sure that I could read it. Um, so deliberate self-denial, all right? And this is, sounds weird because... Um, what in the world does that even mean? In Luke 9, 23, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so it's the idea of denying yourself, denying your earthly desires, your earthly passions, the things that the world would tell you are okay, go do that. It's denying those things in favor of something better, in favor of Jesus. That's what it is. And God uses that. That self-denial to help refine us and to make us more like him. Because those things aren't easy. 
I can't possibly be the only one in this room that's ever given in to a worldly desire. Please tell me I'm not. All right, thank you. All right, hey, I like that feedback, good. All right, I'm not. And so uh, the thing is, that's something that, because that's our natural inclination, it's difficult. And so God refines us by having us deny the things of the world to choose the things of Christ. In Romans eight thirteen, it says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you'll live. We're not called to live according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. And it's a process, this process of refining that's designed for our good, for our own well-being, to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And so the goal isn't that this fire is for the purpose of consuming, but also for purification through affliction and through self-denial. And so what does the process look like? Here we go. This is really where we're going to dive in right here, all right? What's this process look like? Well, here's the first thing. The process uh, involves pain and brokenness. Hey, that's not what I want to hear. Guess what? That's what's biblical. So that's what you're going to hear, all right? It involves pain and brokenness. You see, in the process of the two images they give us, in the process of refining metal, you know what the very first thing that happens is? The ore has to be broken. That's the first thing that happens. You see, the ore is basically a rock or a hard material that inside of it is where the gold and the silver is. But the outside has to be broken in order to access the goodness that's on the inside. And so it's a painful and it involves pain and brokenness. It has to be broken in order to access what's in the middle. And likewise, the image of the fuller's soap. In this process, the wool is brought to the fuller. And the fuller's job was to cleanse uh, the wool. Now, this job was a tough job. It was a job nobody wanted. As a matter of fact, it was a job that was usually done at a fuller's field outside of the city because the smell of it was so bad they didn't want it inside the city. All right? And so what they would do is they would take this wool and they would mix uh, this soap with water and they would soak the wool in the water and then they would beat it. (laughs) They would literally take something and beat it over and over and over until it was pure and white and until it was the thickness that they wanted. It sounds more than just like a one-time whooping, all right? (laughs) This is like repeated beating after beating in order to turn it into what God wanted it to be. You see, these things are painful, and they involve brokenness. That said, in these images, you and I are the ore and the wool. I don't want to be, but that's what I am. (laughs) I'm not the fuller. I'm not the refiner. I'm not the silversmith. I'm the ore and I'm the wool. And so in order to get the best out of the ore and the wool, they had to be broken first. And for each of us, that may be being broken by the afflictions of the world. It could be being broken because of our sin. It could look a lot of different ways. You see, the process of purification can be harsh and difficult. But the trials of this life are not only unavoidable, but they're necessary. They're necessary. It's a process designed for our good, for our well-being, to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And so the process involves pain and brokenness. And here's uh, the good news, all right, because that sounded like a downer. All right, this life's going to be terrible. It's going to be full of pain. Well, it is. Uh, But there's still good and there's still hope, all right? And so here it goes. Uh, The process, 
involves close attention from the refiner. All right, I know that's a bit wordy, but you'll see why in just a minute. The process itself, as you and I are being refined and, and purified and made to look more like Jesus, the process involves close attention from the refiner. Do you see what it says in verse 3? It says that he will sit as a refiner. He will sit. It's an interesting choice of words. All right? Here's what he's saying. This isn't like you or me when we're doing laundry at home, right? I can go throw laundry in the washer. I can go do something else for an hour or do a bunch of other little things for an hour, and then I can come back and finish my laundry. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that he's going to be there the whole time. You see, in the process of refining metal, the refiner sits at the fire the entire time, and he holds the metal over the fire the entire time and doesn't take his eyes off of it. Doesn't take his eyes off of it. He's there the entire time. He doesn't leave. The fuller, likewise, doesn't leave the wool. No, the refiner has to be there for the whole process. You see, Refining silver requires an enormous amount of concentration. The silversmith needs to observe carefully as the heat does its work, never taking his eyes off for even a moment. And the timing of it is everything. You see, he can't leave it because what happens if he takes it off too soon or he takes it off two seconds too late, then the material is unusable. The material becomes unusable. Think about that in light of you and I. When we're put in that refiner's fire, we have God that's right there with his perfect timing that he is not going to let us stay in that fire for too long. He's not. He doesn't want us to come out on the other end unusable as people that just hate him because of the things that we've dealt with. It's not his desire. In this process, the fire is heated uh, over 1,700 degrees for silver and 1,900 degrees for gold, all right? It's hot, all right? Hot. I don't know how else to describe it, all right? It's very hot. And they would heat it over the fire. And when the silver or the gold reached the right temperature, the refiner reintroduced oxygen by blowing air over it through bellows. Blow air over the top of the fire. And what would happen at that point is that the dross, the impurities, would form on the surface of the metal and the refiner would scrape it off. It would scrape off the impurities and get rid of it. And the process was sometimes repeated up to seven times. The process itself was delicate and required just the right temperature and just the right amount of oxygen and lead. See, in Proverbs 25, verse 4, it says this, Take away the dross from the silver... And the silversmith has material for a vessel. Interesting. Once that dross is removed through that process over and over and over, then he has the material that can be used for a vessel. That material is in position to be used by the refiner for whatever he desires. And so God, as the refiner, is with us through the afflictions. He doesn't leave us. He stays right there and his eyes are on us the entire time. The Bible tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. And God also removes us at just the right time. He's going to be present. God's going to be present. You're not going to be alone in that fire of affliction. And his timing is going to be perfect. If you're still in the middle of affliction, it's because it's not the right time for you to be taken off the fire yet. If you're still there, it ain't the right time for you to be taken off yet. If the refiner were to take the metal out too soon or too late, it would make it unusable. So God will be sure... That affliction ends in his perfect timing 
as when that time comes, you'll be in a usable state for his use and his glory. And here's the third aspect of this. The third part of this process is the process ends with us looking more like Jesus. The process ends with us looking more like Jesus. See, the process of refining metal, if you didn't know about the process, the process ends when the refiner looks into the silver or the gold and sees his reflection. That's when the process ends. See, the process ends for us when we begin to look more like Jesus, when he can look at us and he sees himself. The process ends. Interesting, because I look at myself and I don't see Jesus. So that tells me I'm going to keep going through these things. I'm going to keep going through them. But the process ends with us looking more like Jesus. And so this refining, this process that happens, see, they, they, they scrape away the dross, and each time they scrape away the dross, the image is just a little bit clearer. I look just a little bit more like Jesus than I did before. And the refining results in our purification and our being presented holy before God because he sees himself when he looks at us just like a refiner sees his reflection in the metal when it's done. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification is the process of making us holy, making us pure, making us like Jesus. And so our role is to trust God during these times of affliction as the result is for our good and for his glory. You see, in Romans 8, it reminds us that the goal of this isn't to make us happy, healthy, or wealthy, but to conform us into the image of Jesus. And so the process of purification and sanctification is complete when we're in his presence, either at his return or when he calls us home. We'll be purified inwardly, like the refiner with the inside of the ore, and we'll be purified outwardly, like the fuller with his cotton purifies it on the outside. So when he's done purifying us, he will see himself more fully when he looks at us. And there's another aspect of this verse that talks about bringing an offering before the Lord. And so when we are, when he's done purifying us, it enables us to approach the throne in righteousness and we can be a pleasing offering to the Lord. The Lord purifies us. And the end product is something beautiful and valuable, a soul perfected in holiness, the holiness of Jesus. Jesus came to purify the people and cleanse them of sin. And so the hope for us in this promise, and I think I skipped that on the first one, not on purpose, but on accident. Uh, so on this one here, the, part, the hope for us is that our refiner knows what he's doing, all right? That's a good thing. The one that's refining us knows exactly what he's doing, exactly how long to keep us there, and he's there with us the entire time. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's good at what he does. He's the best at what he does. No one else could do it well or do it better. That takes us to our third promise, the last one, the one y'all been waiting for so you can get out of here, all right? Number three, uh, the promise of judgment. And so they questioned justice and judgment at the beginning. And here we go. He finally gets to it. He talks about these other things first, and then in verse five, he gets to it. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress, etc., and those who don't fear the Lord. So there's this promise of judgment. And so at Jesus' second coming, he's going to come as judge. And so let us never think, when you see evil around you, don't ever think that evil is going to go unnoticed or untaken care of. It will. 
It may not happen in the time frame that you or I want, which is what was happening here with the people. They weren't seeing it happen in front of their eyes, so they were questioning it. That didn't mean it wasn't going to happen. It meant it wasn't going to happen when they wanted, how they wanted. Hey, that sounds like living the life of a believer sometimes anyways. The things God asks us to do, the things God does for us, aren't always when we want and how we want. And so they demanded justice in the way that they were hopeful for, and God did not give it. As a matter of fact, here's the deal. Patience itself, because this is what he was doing, he was being patient with those people. Patience is not injustice. And so God's apparent failure to act previously was neither the, failure, the result of his indifference or his impotence. As a matter of fact, sometimes God delays judgment for the purpose of leading people to repentance. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or Romans 2, chapter, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, sometimes he doesn't judge right there in the moment, or we don't see that justice right before our very eyes because God's being patient, giving people an opportunity for repentance. I don't think we view it like that sometimes. But that's what he's doing. He's trying to give them an opportunity for repentance. So he doesn't always do things right then. So what God tells him here is, hey, it's not happening at this moment, but guess what? Full judgment is coming. It is coming. And it will come in my time and in my way, is what God is telling them. My patience that I'm showing right now, it's going to come to an end. I'm not going to be patient with you all forever. And the people of Israel should understand patience because that's literally the entire Old Testament is God showing his love and grace and patience towards them over and over and over and over. So they should know better than anybody else, and yet they're still the ones questioning it. And so God will administer justice to all people in his timing. As a matter of fact, I find this interesting too. It does, not only does it say that God's going to be the judge, it says in verse 5 that he's going to be a witness against them. And the thing that they're complaining about is how long it's taking God to do something, but it says he's going to be a swift witness. So it's kind of like, hey, this is ironic. <laughs> they're complaining about how slow God's moving. He's like, oh no, it's going to be swift. Oh, really? That seems contrary to what we're seeing right now. So they didn't believe it. And so he says he's going to come as a swift witness. He's going to be a judge and he's going to be the witness because he's the perfect witness because he's the one that can never lie. He's going to be a faithful and honest witness in all cases. See, he says, and they mention several specific groups of people here. He says he's going to be a witness against the sorcerers or those who deal in spiritual wickedness, the adulterers, those who chase the lust of the flesh, the false swearers, those who profane God's name and affront his, his justice, and the oppressors, those who injure and trample upon the helpless. And most importantly, those that don't fear God. See, these sins that he mentions all have a root and a lack of religion. They're sins of selfishness. They're sins of self-centeredness. They're people who don't fear God and don't know and don't follow his ways. That's who he's referring to. And so where no fear is, no good is to be expected. And so in these cases, these people have no fear of God like they should. And while this verse specifically is speaking to eternal judgment, I do want to point out that he is not suggesting justice not be pursued while on earth. He's not suggesting that in any way, even though this verse is referring to eternal judgment. 
As a matter of fact, God used people throughout Scripture to settle disputes. And he had laws in place as to consequences for certain behaviors. Those things were all existing to help provide justice in the world we live in. You look at Moses. Moses judges the people during his time. And his father-in-law is like, hey, don't do this on your own. Go appoint other people to help you because it's too much for you to do by yourself. Deborah in Judges 4 verse 5. It says she used to sit under the palm of Deborah in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. King Solomon, you have the story of the two women fighting over the baby, and he judges fairly and rightly amongst them. And so there are people that God has used in order to help promote justice on earth, so it's not just eternal justice, although this verse is speaking to that. He also tells us that we need to be pursuing that while here on earth as well. And when we look forward to that day where God comes as judge, the day of his second coming, Who can endure that day? Those that are wicked and in rebellion against God, for them it'll be a day of damnation and a day of eternal judgment. But for those that fear the Lord, for those that are in Christ, for those that are following him, that day is going to result in complete purification of our minds and bodies. And we'll be presented as pure before a holy, blameless, and just God. What an amazing day that's going to be. Amen? What an amazing day that's going to be. And so here's our hope in this promise, is that God will administer justice for all sin. God's going to administer it, because he promises to, and the God we serve is faithful and always keeps his promises. And so it will come. So the world we live in, we're not going to see it on an everyday basis. We're not going to see it for every situation that we feel like rightly deserves justice, because there are times where God is waiting. And it's not always going to happen right when we want. So as we close, here's what I want to do. I want to ask y'all to look at just a few things. All right? This verse gives hope for the believer, hope for our eventual purification, our holiness, the idea that we're going to be like Jesus. But it also offers warning to those that don't know him, to the wicked and the evil. And so if you haven't trusted Jesus, You're walking through the fire of affliction alone, and judgment is promised at his return. Today can be that day that you choose to trust Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, find comfort in knowing that the things you go through are to make you like him. And when he returns, you're going to be fully purified and more like him than ever before. Seek that out. Trust in him in each and every one of those situations, because it's for your good and his glory. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I ask this morning that you do what you need to do. Um, God, that you honor uh, and glorify your name. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you do offer us promises in times of questioning and in times of doubt. Lord, that you offer good news of hope uh, for those who love you and seek you and honor you. God, I pray that we find hope in you and in you alone, God that we look to your eventual return, that we look to it as a positive thing, Lord, for us, as we get to be in your presence. And God, at that time, you will come as a God of justice and as an ultimate judge to judge the people of the world. God, I pray that whatever decisions people need to make, whatever things you've put on people's heart, God, that they're good, uh, that they, they take those in, 
that they acknowledge those, that they don't just acknowledge them, but that they figure out what that means to live it out in a way that you would have them to. God, as we take this time to reflect on your word and your truth, I just ask that you'd speak to us in a mighty way. In your name I pray, amen.